Welcome everyone to Be Better Betters. I'm the host, Spanky. Thanks for listening. My guest this week is a sports betting legend. His experience has spanned multiple eras of the industry and has managed to be a force to be reckoned with throughout his entire career. His size is only exceeded by his honor and his heart, and I'm super proud to call him my close friend. Known by many as Fat Boy, but affectionately known to his friends as Fats. Fats, thanks for coming on, buddy. Good to be with you, Spank. So, Fats, I always like to start with, how was life growing up? Well, I always um, was interested in in sports. I liked to play them as a kid and stuff like that. Although my parents, both being teachers and stuff like that, they didn't. They weren't really into the the playing the sports so much. They were more into you know get good grades and all that stuff. And they figured if you played sports in school, you're gonna like like football or something like that, you're going to get injured and, and they didn't want to deal with that. So best I was able to ever do was join the bowling team. But uh, my parents, they were, they were, they were both math teachers. And um, over the years of growing up, I managed to take those math skills and, and uh, put them to good use. Uh, my my like for example like my dad at the at the dinner table at night he would quiz me and my brothers it was always math questions at the dinner table and uh, so I grew up with a great math background and uh, made the most of it. Beautiful. What was your first encounter with gambling? Well. I was always, you know, big fan, like watching sports and stuff like that. And uh, back in, uh, let's see, how old was I? I was about, I guess, just in junior high school, um, maybe around seventh or eighth grade. There was a neighbor that lived in the house behind us that had an Irish setter that I used to, I used to babysit or sit for. We were like, we were like buddies, me and this dog, and. Sometimes they'd go down the sh- they'd go down the shore for the whole summer and pay me to babysit the dog. I had my own summer house, wow. living behind the ha- my parents' house. It was amazing. But the neighbors across the street were um, there was a guy that moved that uh, bought the house across the street, and he was a, a candy distributor and. Uh, so I, I used to talk to him a lot. I, you know, he was obviously older he was in his, I guess, twenties at the time. Uh, and I would hang out with him and actually we would I'd play cards with his wife and then we'd play hearts and stuff like that. And one day I was just hanging out and I heard him making some bets on, on the phone. And I was like, Oh, what, you're betting on games. And he, you know, he kind of explained it to me and I said, Oh wow, that sounds like that sounds really cool. So like the next day I, I put a I decided who I wanted to bet on and I like left them a note on the door, could you bet these things for me? And like the next day he's like, No, no, I can't do that. What are you crazy? Like and so he shut me, he shut me right down and said, you know, I couldn't do he couldn't do that for me and 
So anyway, as I, but I always had an interest in, in the sports and the picking games and that kind of stuff. And so I was in school and I caught wind that the teachers in our school had a, um, had a weekly football pool. And my French teacher, I happened to notice her pool was sitting on her, on her desk as I was walking out of class. And I said to her one day, I said, oh, make sure you pick so-and-so this week. And she said, oh, really? She said, well, who else should I take? And she handed me the pool, and I picked all her games. And she won the pool that week. I love it. And, uh, and she gave me $10, which was a bone. I don't know what she was. She probably won over 100 but She gave me $10, and then she had me – every week she had me picking the pool for her. And she ended up winning a, winning a second time. And me, I couldn't keep – I was so, like, proud of myself. I knew the teacher – it was a physics teacher who was the one that a biology slash physics teacher was the one who put the pool out. And I made a comment to him and he's like, what are you talking about? And, uh, and, and anyway, when he found out that I was baking her picks, they told her she's not allowed to let me pick anymore for her. <laughs> I got, I got booted. You know, you, you know, it's one thing you come to Vegas and the sports book tells you you can't you can't bet anymore. But in high school, I got kicked off the teacher's pool for advising a teacher. That's great. That's your wow. That's 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 got to be the record for the youngest uh, uh, 86th uh, ever. Like amazing. And so yeah, you know, it's not like I was that. I mean, it was picked the winner, so it's not like I was that. You know, had to be. I was that sharp, but. Uh -huh. um, and then a friend of mine from high school whose father was a, was a bookmaker and another friend of mine who we like to talk about sports and stuff like that. You know, basically my friend was starting his own little bookmaking business by taking bets from, from his friends. You know, and he just turned him into his father or whatever. You know, he was making money that way. And but back then, you know, you, you want to bet five dollars a game. If you bet less than fifty dollars, you had to lay six to five. And uh, so, you know, you bet five dollars, six to five. It doesn't seem like a lot, but yeah, you notice it, it can add up pretty quickly. And uh, so I did that for a little bit, you know, took my licks here and there. And then, you know, talking to my, now that I had my own bookmaker, I was talking to my neighbor again that had the bookmaker and he was giving me, telling me various things and stuff like that. And he brought up the topic of, of middling. And I said, middling, what's that? And he's like, well, like if you, let's say you find two bookmakers that have, different lines and then you could like let's say bet minus two at one guy and plus four with the other guy and if it falls two three or four you're going to make money no matter what happens and if not you're just going to lose a little bit and i was like wow that's that's pretty neat of course 
I was lucky I had one bookmate. So now I, I went on a mission to find more bookmakers at eighth, ninth grade level. And I found this guy named Lenny, who was supposed to be a I forget how I found him, but this guy Lenny was supposed to be a bookmaker. And I'll never forget my first medal. It was the NCA tournament. And I called up and I got a line from my regular like $5 bookmaker guy. And it was like one and a half, and this guy was giving me four and a half. One of the teams involved was West Virginia. And so I asked my $5 guy, I was like, I told him I wanted about $200 on it. And he was like, that's a lot. I said, don't worry. That's all right. Because I knew it was only going to cost me $20. And then I bet the up two hundred plus the four and a half or whatever with the other guy, and um, the game fell. I think it fell four or something like that. And it middled, and I was like, "Oh my god, this is the greatest thing in the world! I won four hundred dollars." Until Lenny turned out to be a stick. I, I, Lenny owed me two hundred dollars, and. I was determined to get that $200 and he worked in a deli. And finally I, I went into, I went into that deli and browbeat him in the deli until he finally said, all right, I'll pay you. Just leave me alone. And so then I learned my lesson about, you know, getting stiffed and, um, and all that kind of, Oh, so this oh, is great. So. You know, you're learning a lot of these big lessons early on. You're seeing how it is to get kicked out. You're getting stiff. You're middling. Like these are like advanced topics for somebody, you know, just of a high school age. Little did I know how how what, what more lay ahead of me. <laughs> yeah, amazing. All right, so, um, so okay, so you really now you, you kind of after high school, you kind of now uh, are, are definitely you 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 got your feet wet. Um, let's talk about the college years. What happens, you know? Went back home to the Philadelphia area and uh, ended up going back to school at Villanova where I got my degree in math. And I graduated from Villanova in 19, um, I guess it was yeah, in 1988. And um, that summer, I decided to do a baseball trip, driving around the country, um, seeing a baseball game in every major league ballpark. And we did the trip in, it was 15,000 miles of driving. In 35 days, we saw every ballpark, and it was literally we'd see a game, drive to the next city, see a game, drive this, to the next city. That's something I always game. wanted to do. You did it in one summer? Did it in 35 days. Oh 15,000 miles in 35 days. And the way I mapped it out was I took a calendar, and 
over like a two month period and I wrote in each box on the calendar where all the which teams were home. And I tried to figure out how to go from box to box to box to the nearest city, which was reasonable to do like one day at a time, knowing which teams were home. You went to and Canada also? What's that? You went to Canada also? Yes. Oh and what I discovered was that the easiest way to do it was I noticed that the six California teams where three were home before the All-Star break and three were home after the All-Star break. So I started from the All-Star break on either side and worked my way backwards till I got all the teams. And that's how I planned the trip. And then, you know, this was the days before there was GPS. So I, I went to AAA and I said, I need a trip tick. They said, okay, where are you going? I said, well, See, I'm starting in Philadelphia, then I'm going to Baltimore, then back to Philadelphia, then up to New York, then up to Canada, then back to and I gave them the whole the whole route. And I had this big triptych of the whole trip. Wow. And that's what we used to get um to uh to all the games. Now, on this trip, the person I went with was the brother of Mitch, the guy who was my um, bookmaking uh, or my my high school bookmaker friend from high school. It was actually his younger brother, but we got along. He wasn't that much younger, but he was a real sharp kid, and and we got along, and. Uh, Interesting enough, on the trip, he was he wanted to bet the games along the way. So I said, "Yeah, no, no problem." And I went and I would get the lines, but then I would just a lot of times I didn't like what he liked, so I just said, "Yeah, okay," I put it in, and <laughs> I basically bet I basically bet against him the whole trip with him, and. Uh, he didn't do well on the trip, so that helped me pay for the. Pay for the <laughs> That's great. But uh, the interesting thing about that trip was that during the three-day All-Star break, we decided to go to Las Vegas for the three days, and. Through a guy I knew who was supposedly, he was a professional handicapper that I had met. He knew a guy who ran the uh, sports book at Harris on the Las Vegas Strip. A guy named David Lee. And so he hooked me up with David Lee for free rooms for the our little trip to Vegas. And while I was there, I talked to David Lee about, so let's say I was in Las Vegas and, um, you know, I would bet like, and I would call like a bookmaker back East and, 
and bet in a casino would I get a lot of line differences because you would see when I was there, you would see big differences in the line sheets that would like supposedly what a game opened to what it closed. And I was like, would you find differences? And he said, sure you would. So then and there, I decided that that December or I guess in Jan- that January, I was going to come to Las Vegas for college basketball season and try to middle games between my bookies back east and the lines in the casinos. That was my master plan. Awesome. Good stuff, brother. All right, so you're in Vegas now. You decide in January of 89 you're going to move to Vegas and you're going to start, you know, middling, um, you know, and you're going to just start middling full time. This is, you know, you went to school, you got a math degree. Um, is this what you envisioned your life was going to be? Or, you know, what kind of decision is this? December, I flew out to Vegas for a week in December to look for an apartment. And through that guy at Harris, David Lee, he gave me a recommendation to somebody. I was able to secure an apartment. I signed a lease. So I had a place to move to when I drove out in January of 89. Now, an interesting happened to me before I did this. I used to have a bookmaker that I bet with. His name was Louie. And this guy was the nicest guy in the world. And as it turned out, I later, I found out later that I went to high school with his son um, years earlier, um, but not I didn't know that until after I'd known him as a bookmaker for a while. But anyway, and I would meet this guy from week to week, and he would kept telling me about this this one guy who kept beating the balls off, and. He said, every every week, pay the guy, pay the guy, pay the guy, pay the guy. And I was like, ah, come on, Lou, you, you know, you know, you're going to end up with the best of it. You'll you'll get the guy, and I'd always, you know, give him support and stuff like that. So anyway, I mentioned to him that I was going to be going out to Vegas. And he gets back to me and he says, I got a a friend out there who might need some help. And I was like, well, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, he's tried to explain to me that, you know, basically he was trying to explain to me that they were runners for somebody or whatever and they needed help. And I didn't know. I said, well, you know, give me the name. I'll, you know, we'll, I'll look into it. But, you know, I was really going out there to do my own thing and I didn't, uh, but I would see what the deal was. So I get out there and I get put in touch with this guy who's hanging out at um, Caesar's Palace. And also, I drove out with a, one of my best friends from high school that I grew up lived across the street from me forever. He had nothing to do. So he drove out to Vegas with me 
and ended up staying for a couple of months when he came out. And uh, so anyway, I get to Vegas and now my plan wasn't well thought out because I was planning on doing all this middling and making my fortune middling. And I only had brought with me a bankroll of about $6,000. So I don't know how that really, in retrospect, I don't know how that ever was going to work out. Um, if I would have gone with plan A. Um, especially since I, I, did, I found out early on that I wasn't as good a poker player as I thought I was at the time. And uh, I discovered uh, Omaha High, which I thought was, looked like an easy game. I mean, you get four cards and you put five out there. I mean, how can you, how can you ever fold? And every time you do fold, it seems like you always got there. So why ever fold? And I never could understand. Anyway, it was that was a nightmare. I would always find a way to lose. And then there was, you know, a little little blackjack. Even the, uh, I would play a little blackjack, and that that didn't work out. So I was losing a little. I was hemorrhaging a little right out of the gate. So anyway, I met the this guy that was out there. And basically, he used to hang out at Caesar's Palace, and he would have an 800 number, and he would call back to the the boss back home, which had me back in the Philadelphia area. And, you know, they would tell him what to bet. He would call in the lines, and they would tell him what to bet. And... Uh, and there was this other guy named, uh, they had this other guy, Randy, who had had been working for him. The, this guy who was out there, we'll call him, call him Wally, was the guy out there. And uh, Wally was, um, he was kind of like a horse degenerate and, and kind of a little on the lazy side, so. He was always busy betting the horses, and uh, and then he got lazy. He didn't feel like running around all the casinos, so he got a guy who was a ticket writer. I think the guy was writing tickets at Little Caesars. This guy named kid named Randy, and he hired him to be your runner. And then, of course, that guy ran off with money and this, that, and the other thing. And, so now I was going out there and I was somebody that was known by this guy, Louie, who vouched for me. And I was going to be like, like you could use this guy to, to, to work for you. And they really, after what they'd been through with this Randy guy, they, they wanted no, really wanted no part to me. But Louie said, nah, you should really trust this guy and give me a shot. And I, and then I said to myself, I said, well, you know what? This is a chance to make $500 a week. And I can learn a little bit about what's going on. And so I, I started working, working for this crew. And the, uh, you know, we would meet at a certain time. They would give you the money. We would go to, I would go to a very, whatever casino they told me to go to. Then you had an 800 number. You would call them what the lines were. They wanted you to bet something. You bet it. You brought everything back, turned it in at the end of the day. 
boom, you're done. No walkie-talkies or radios, nothing like that at that time? No, no. No walkie-talkies or or radios. You had to just keep calling in like every line change you would call in. And uh, so this was back in the days when the Stardust used to have, they used to have that phone room in the back, and you could call 800 numbers from that phone room. Um, So I used to be... Like I would be like at the Stardust, and uh, and then at the end of the day, and then my friend who came out with me, well, got I got him started, so he, they would send him out too, and they hired both of us, so we were both working. And now this was January, so this is right before the Super Bowl in 1989. This was the end of '88. I went out there. I went out there in January '89, and it was the. San Francisco Cincinnati Super Bowl and I had heard somebody tell me that the um, Super Bowl was um, higher up in Lake Tahoe because all the people coming over from San Francisco so I told that to the guy who um, you know, we were betting for and he said, okay, well get up there. And he just sent me up. I, so I went up to um, up to Lake Tahoe and sure enough the, the game was eight up there and it was pretty much like seven elsewhere and uh so they had me bet the game but by the way they didn't send me up there with any money i had to use my i used my own money to bet the game i actually think i at the time i had about and worked a few weeks and i, I was up to like about eight thousand dollars i went up there with eight thousand dollars of my own money i bet the game for them with my own money and then it won, and then I cashed the ticket, and that was like $17,000. I was like, oh, my God, this is a lot of money. When I walked back out to my car that I was using, I was like, I had the security escort me to the car because I was afraid to leave the casino with all that with that much money um, at the time. And uh, so anyway, when I got back they, they were impressed with me and then I was kind of like I was like in with the group at that point when um, baseball season came about I had to go back to uh, Philadelphia because I was in a, a rotisserie baseball league and without fail I would go to state back to state college every year to do our draft live and this is before it was all computerized and everything so all the stats were always done by hand and live auction with making our own boards and all kinds of stuff like that and um so i had to go back to philly and when i was back there i met with the actual boss and he promoted me to being in charge of the crew because wally was just too unreliable he you know his heart wasn't in it um, I was good with figures and um, 
And that, I mean, and this guy, he was like, he became my mentor. He was about one of the hardest people to work for by most standards of working for people. And he was, he was like brutal and demanding. But if you, if you did your job, then the sky was the limit with this guy, what he would do for you and how he take care of you and, and stuff like that. And I, I was thrilled to, to be in charge of the, you know, to take over and have that, um, that responsibility. And, uh, my friend who had come out with me went back East and, and then he started doing some work for my friend, found him working one of his businesses and, uh, he ended up working for him. And, um, so what, what, what do we want to call the boss? What, what name? Um, let's call him the businessman. All right. So the businessman, so this is pretty crazy because you, you, you go out to Vegas in January and by April you're running the Vegas crew. I, that is correct. So that's a insane promotion in such a short period of time. Does this crew, does this crew bet all year round? Like, are you, were you, when did you go back to Vegas or are they running? Is it a 365 crew or do they only work football, basketball? Oh yeah. He, this, this guy wanted the, the origination of the crew was back in October. He had taken a trip to Vegas and he used to do this a lot. Like he's real hard on his employees and stuff like that. But then he rewards them like he would take them all on a trip to Las Vegas. And he had gone out taking a bunch of people out on the trip to Las Vegas. And at the time, this guy Wally was out there on the trip with them and he would send Wally around to make some bets. Now he had become, he, he was the guy that was beating the balls off of that bookmaker, Louie. And he had a guy that he used to talk to in New York that he would get a lot of information from and get games from and stuff like that. And then he was also trained to know that the, the guy that he knew in New York put him in contact with some of the, the big New York bookmakers. Um, the various names they used to be like Penny and various offices the big New York offices um, and they were basically what you would do is you would call those offices constantly and get rundowns and a lot of times you would call on a game would be six and then all of a sudden you'd call and it'd be five well then you wanted to go take plus six wherever you could because that meant there you know it moved it's not like now a sharp guy goes out and takes six you see it move on the Don best everywhere and you got nowhere to go there's no place to take six, but back then, if you had, you know, small outs and, and casino access and stuff like that, and you see a big New York office go from six to five or four and a half, you could still go out there. And if you're quick, you could still add time to, to take six. So they would, he would sit there and he'd have a crew that would call all these New York guys and just keep getting rundowns and, and then, you know, throw a, you know, nickel courtesy bet here and there since they didn't get upset that they were 
calling for constant rundown. So, so the business, the businessman is 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 running a betting office. He's not booking. He's just he's strictly running a betting office, or is he doing both? Or uh, no, he he's betting. He's betting based on you know the stuff that uh, he learned from this New York guy that kind of put him on to how to do this do this the right way. And now he's trying to turn it into a business, just like any other business that he was involved in. Perfect. So he has, he has, he has like a phone crew in his office that he's calling different bookmakers. And then he has you guys, he has you in Vegas where he'd call and give you guys the order. You'd he'd give it to you in Vegas, the order, and then you kind of would give it to your guys in Vegas, you know, the guys underneath you or, or oh, how each, you... each of the guys underneath me, they would all call into the office. Everybody had the 800. Gotcha. Call into the office. gotcha. Actually at one time it used to be, there used to be like a, under Wally, they used to have a credit card number that they would use to call back. But Wally abused it, calling 900 sex numbers, and, <laughs> and they, they they did away with that. That's funny. But you know, the, the, you know, one another funny thing is, like you would think that that's something that would infuriate the businessman. He loved that shit when somebody would. When somebody would, um, you know, do something like that, he he found it more entertaining than you know the fact that he spent all that money on the guy's uh, sex calls. Yeah, he liked the funny story. He always had a unique way of of looking at things, and I, the best example I can give you, and this is an unrelated a story, unrelated to gambling per se, but he had a guy that was working for him in one of his businesses and he was, this guy was, was a, was really a bad apple. And he, the businessman was the kind of guy that always thought everybody could be fixed and reformed. And so he had a lot of these misfits that he took under his wing and tried to do what he, he could with them. And this one guy, he, you know, he had drug issues and he had other, all kinds of other problems. And one day he needed somebody to drop some money off. I don't know if it was a, a store deposit or whatever it was. He needed something wrong. So he gave this guy the money, the $5,000, and he was supposed to do whatever he was supposed to do with it. And the guy, disappeared for a couple of weeks and so finally i happened to be back east at the time when the when the guy was in his office and confronted about this and he said to the guy did you take you you had the money or he said yeah he said what'd you do with it he says i spent it and he says why'd you spend it? He says, because I needed to, you know, buy my drugs or whatever it was I needed to do. And he was like, well, why, why, why would you do that? And the guy turns to the businessman and he says, what are you blaming me? This is not my fault. You, you, you should know better than to trust me with that money. 
<laughs> and the businessman was like, you know what? You're right. <laughs> I mean, that's the way he looks at things. You're right. It's my fault. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I got a lot of perspective in my mentoring from this guy on ways to think about situations and how to, you know, view situations and, you know, not just think about them the way most normal people would think about them. Damn, that's good. That, so did, was the businessman involved in any other businesses or this was his only gig? Oh, no, no. He was he had lots of lots of real business. Businesses, lawyers, a team of lawyers always, uh, you know, anywhere from, you know, owning apartment buildings and uh, all, all kinds of businesses. Gotcha. So, but this was his, he, this was his, he loved this. This was his passion. This was his passion. This was his passion. Like, this, he didn't need, he had so much money, he didn't even need to do this. He just liked it. It was, it was a, a rush for him. And he tried to do it to, you know, train people to do it so that he could gamble without having to, you know, be like right on. So, all right. So, so these guys are just winning hand over foot. What happened was at the time, um, you know, my friend left. So I really didn't have much of a crew to run with. And there were these two guys that were, um, where Wally, there was Sharon Wally's apartment or the apartment that Wally was living in. And so I had those two guys working for me at the time. So I still had two, two guys. And the one thing when you run a crew is you always have people that want to work for you. Oh, I know a guy or, Hey, I could work for you. I'd be great. Or, I mean, it's like every day, so-and-so wants to, wants to know if they could get a job and blah, 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 blah. Now, one of the other advantages I had with the businessman was that when it came to like weekends, I didn't have to worry about a crew because he would fly people out just to run for the weekend. Wow. He'd fly them out. Like he had a couple of employees that worked in his businesses that were like degenerate gambler types. Mm-hmm. But that like, you know, they were into the whole gambling thing. And if they worked hard enough all week, they would get to and this to them, for them, this was like a a reward for them. They would get to fly to Vegas on a Friday. They would get in on Friday night. I would have them up like to start work by like five o'clock Saturday morning. Because back then the sports books were open 24 hours on weekends for football and stuff. So by five o'clock in the morning, you get the early bird from all the all the drunks betting overnight would get a lot of off numbers and stuff. And so they, and then they would work all day Saturday until the last game started, get up early Sunday morning, work all the way till the last game Sunday night, and then fly home on the red eye Sunday night and go to work Monday in the supermarket and then work straight through all week, probably 60 hours 
and then fly back again the next Friday. <laughs> That's great. So, and it's pretty much, and that was a reward for them. So, yeah, that was a reward for them. It was great for me because I had guys that I could just brutalize running around and not have to worry about them complaining or anything like that. I could really make the most of, uh, of them. And one guy, he was fast as lightning. I mean, running uh, from place to place, and oh, it was it was it was unbelievable. As a matter of fact, it was this guy was so fast that Gene Mayday of Little Caesars once asked me about the guy, and he says I never seen somebody run that fast. <laughs> and one there was one day like he was up all the way up at the desert inn, and I sent him down to Little Caesars, and. He gets down there and he calls me when he gets down there and he says, all right, now what'd you want? And I said, well, you got there fast. Would you take a cab? And he goes, no, I ran. I like how fast he got there. I don't know how he got there that fast. <laughs> and unfortunately, Amazing. a sad story. This, this guy, he liked to drink a lot. And, um, uh, unfortunately he got real drunk one night, not when he was out in Vegas, but when he was home, and, um, he, you know, had too much to drink and vomited in his sleep and passed away. You know, oh, that sucks. It was a very, very tragic, tragic and, and sad. Uh, he, he was such a such a good kid too, full life. And uh, so, so let me ask, just just structure wise, were these so the you know. The businessman paid everybody. You didn't have to. It's not like he gave you and then you you ran your crew where you paid everybody. He pretty much paid every. He employed everybody, but you kind of told the crew where to go. Right. I would direct the. I I would, I would direct the crew. Uh, well, actually, at the beginning, they would say where they wanted the crew to go, but. Um. What happened was the next evolution was, remember the guy, Randy, I told you about the, mm-hmm. the first guy that stole from us. Okay. Well, that guy went back to Philadelphia for rehabilitation and worked for the businessman in his businesses and was rehabilitated to the point where they were going to send him back out to Vegas again. (laughs) And the plan was they weren't going to give him money. They were going to, they were going to get an office and they were going to put him in the office and then have him kind of have all the, the crew out in Vegas call into the office and he would keep, track of everything now that was the plan but the plan went a little bit awry when before he even got off the plane from philadelphia to las vegas he had already called the head and had somebody make bets for him he was late for work the first morning and was engaged to a stripper by the second day 
<laughs> Who he married? <laughs> That's great. So, him being unreliable was an understatement. I ended up going into the office myself. And that was the the key to everything. And when I was in the office, having been out on the street, I knew what casinos were where and why and next to each other and which ones were you're more likely to find a good number or a bad number. So when I was in the office, um, I would, I had access to what, you know, the sharp, the sharp numbers of, uh, from updates from sharp places and everybody would call into me and then I would tell them what to bet, where to go and everything like that. And after I was in there for a day, I was like, Oh my God, this is the way to do this because I like, I like got this. I know exactly where everybody should be because one of the problems with the businessman was he'd get on the phone and you'd be at a place like, let's say you'd be at the Stardust and he'd say, okay, go check the line at, um, at the Tropicana, which was way down the other end of the strip. And then he'd say, okay, now go check the line at the Sahara, which is way back the other end of the strip. Mm. Like he didn't know what was next to what. Yeah. Like if you were at the Stardust, you might say, okay, go to the frontier next. Then go across the street to the Desert Inn. And then, you know, and work your way down in order. So I was able to do that. So anyway, he told me that he didn't want me in the office. He wanted me on the street. Like in no uncertain terms, he told me that's the way he wanted it. And that's the way it was going to be. And I defied that order. And stayed in the office. And he didn't realize I had done that for about two weeks. Well, we had the most productive two weeks from a standpoint of getting down. I mean, we won too, but it was what we were getting down and how we were getting down and, you know, the types of numbers we were getting. And then that's when he found out. And I said, look, this is this is the best way for it to work. And um, I, I then stayed in the office uh, from then, then forward. Wow. So that was a big move. And that was, that was really the, the next turning point for me in moving up the, the ladder. Now, back to what we talked about with everybody wanted a job. Mm. So I decided instead of just telling people no outright or whatever, I give them all a false sense of hope that they could get a job. And I created a job application for runners. And it was 10 pages. And it had your basic stuff, like your name, your address, all your pertinent information. 
which I didn't even care about. Contacts, relatives, whatever. I mean, you know, I didn't really care about it because I knew I was never going to get to the point where I hired him and he did something. I had to contact those people. But, you know, that's what they think, you know, was important. And they would fill that out. And then I had a lot of other questions on the thing. You know, some innocuous questions like what's your favorite color, uh, stuff like that. But mixed in to the 10 pages were three questions that were the three questions that everybody was going to fail the job application on. And um, if not on one, on at least, usually they failed all three, but they would definitely fail on one and usually at least two. And the three questions were, what is the best strip club in town? <laughs> now, anybody that could answer that question <laughs> that, that knew the, all the strip clubs well enough to know what the best one in town was definitely is a financial risk. <laughs> I love it. Good. So anybody that could answer that and like with certainty, I mean, you would get, I would get paragraphs as to why, the one club was the best, and this, I mean, it's unbelievable. <laughs> All right. The next question I asked, one of the questions I asked was, what was the best day they ever had gambling? <laughs> now, they all love telling you what their best day gambling was. The problem is, whatever number, amount that was that they gave me, I would multiply that by a factor of five or 10 because that's, I knew that was what my exposure was going to be on their worst day game. When if they took my money, and used it. <laughs> that's good. And then <clears throat> another question was, I asked if, if I told them to bet a game and in their personal handicapping, they liked the opposite side of that game. Would they tell me, would they let me know so that I didn't make a mistake and, and make a bad bet? <laughs> and almost always they all said, absolutely, I would tell you, which meant that they weren't going to do what they were told and they had an opinion and I couldn't use it. Oh, man, this is I got to write these three questions down. Those were the, those, those were the, the three keys to the employment application. I love how you phrase it. So I wouldn't make a mistake. Like they're trying to help you. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was that, that was, that was it. I mean, they, they were just set up for failure, but I mean, the bottom line was I didn't want to hire anybody. I didn't know. And. Um, great, great. So I love that. I love the, the the runner contract. So, all right. So, so, so you're, you're running for this crew now. I, I, like, you know, are, are you working for any other crews? Do people approach you now? Your name's getting out there in Vegas. Wow. Look, the fattest crew, you know, he's got a bunch of guys. He's running this. Or is there, are you, is there an opportunity to work for somebody else or you just stick with the businessman? No, no, I was, I was 100% totally loyal to the businessman. I didn't, uh, look at uh, even attempt to try to work for other people or 
or anything like that. I was very happy with and secure. I mean, obviously, I was, you know, being paid a little bit more. Um, and, you know, I would get bonuses from time to time and everything was, everything was good. There was no, no reason to, to in my mind, to ever want to get involved with anybody else. The, the um, businessman, the businessman took care of his guys from what I understand. Yes, he, he, he took care of them. He treated them. He was as tough as, as anybody could ever be, but, but he always, you know, rewarded them and treated them fair in the long run. Like if there was something that they ever needed, I mean, he'd be the first guy that was there to see that they got it. But when it came to work and doing your job, that was, I mean, that was his big motto, do your job. All right. So how long are you, you're with the businessman for a very long time? How many years are we well, talking? What year to what year? Well, actually, it was the um, I was with him for about from eighty nine to five years into the mm -hmm. mid nineties when I eventually finally went on my own. But before that, I was recruited by. Billy Walters and did do a year with Billy after you um, left the, after you left the businessman after I left the businessman right there was no um, everything was mutual there it was there wasn't any you know kind of animosity or any, anything like right, that so, so let's talk about let's talk about Billy Walters how was that and how did that come about well if you recall Back in the early 90s, there was the infamous computer trial where Billy Walters was on trial for gambling. Mm -hmm. And this trial, at the time, this trial was a big, a big thing because if he got convicted, then that meant that everything that we were doing was no good and we were going to be out of business. So this was a huge, huge um, landmark trial for, for gambling. So the businessman had me attend the trial every day, take notes, report back to him. And I sat in the first row right behind Billy Walters and his wife. And and that was how I got to meet Billy. Amazing. And um, eventually, I introduced him after he'd won the trial. I introduced him to the businessman, and you know they 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 worked some deals together and worked together um, getting the games directly. You know Billy's games directly from Billy, and um, so I ended up facilitating that whole arrangement. I remember you telling me at that trial, you were able to uh, take some of the evidence home. I think that was some cool. I remember you telling me that years yes, ago. Yes, I have in my possession. For anybody listening out there who <laughs> is interested in possibly putting together 
a book or something like that. I have in my possession transcripts of the wiretaps from the Billy Walters case. These are transcripts of conversations with Billy Walters on them, getting rundowns, making bets, discussing um, games, strategies, um, meeting people, all kinds of stuff. Now, how did you get that? How did you wind up with that? Well, they at the trial, they printed out transcripts of the things when they were playing the wiretaps. And after the trial, I walked up to the prosecutor and I said, would it be possible to get copies of those transcripts that um, did you hand it out during the trial? And she said, yeah, I don't need them anymore. And she said, come over to my office. And there was like two boxes there and boom, just picked them up. We just picked them up and took them away. <laughs> I love it. And I've had him. I've had him just sitting in my closet for for twenty five years now. Always figuring I could do something with them, but I, you know, I mean, I'm an expert on everything that happened during that trial. And so, all right, so the, so okay, so now Billy, you meet Billy at his trial. He winds up winning the trial, and now the businessman Billy doing business. How do you part ways from the businessman and how do you join Billy's crew? What, what, how, you know, describe that. Okay. Well, what they ended up doing was they set up an office in Las Vegas where Billy wanted to like control all the betting of the, of the Philly guys. So basically they set up an office out in Vegas and they, the, the businessman sent his own people out to Vegas to work in that office to, to call their outs. And then Billy had everybody. So Billy would have everybody in one room. He could pop everything into a computer, get his stuff charted easier. And everybody was on site and, and that was that was uh, the plan. Now, the year that they did this was the year that I started to work for. Was the year I worked for Billy, and Billy wanted me to come in and run that office, and I didn't. I didn't want to do that. And I managed to just stay working from home like I did. And they got another guy to, to do it. And as it turns out, I dodged a bullet there because that office ended up getting raided <laughs> at, at one point. And um, so that kind of put a monkey wrench in that whole, whole operation. Um, but how was that one year working? When did you wind up like when you when you parted ways with the businessman? What what happened? And what did you tell him? Like how did you guys part amicable? You know, uh, Billy wanted me to work with him, and then the 
the businessman had taken on another partner who um, we'll call him the lion. And uh, <laughs> well, he'd taken on another partner who I actually had a train to be my boss. And at, at some point the you know, the lion had his own way of doing things and he didn't really see eye to eye with the businessman on a lot of stuff. And they were always going back and forth and I was getting caught in the middle a lot. And, and he didn't see the need necessarily for the expense of me. So it was, it was a good spot for me to move on. Billy had expressed an interest in, in me working for him for a season and um, the interesting thing about the season I worked for Billy was at the time, it was like the only year that Billy lost for the entire season, except for the stuff that I bet for him, which ended up being good for me. Gotcha. So... Explain how Billy works. You know, it's, it's mystical. A lot of people are like, how does Billy ah, work? Good old Billy. Well, okay. First of all, having worked with Billy and over the years, um, especially during those years, Billy was most known for his betting of college basketball and college football. And in particular, Saturday college basketball and obviously Saturday college football. And over the years, I charted his, over several years, I charted his win-loss record just on Saturdays in college football and college basketball. And do you know what his win-loss record was? Uh... I would probably guess probably in the high 50s, maybe 56, 57%. Nope. His winning percentage was 100% over a three-year period. Got to ask the question. How is that? Okay. Well, every Sunday after all the games were over, every game where the line moved, and the, the uh, line movement was – team covered the line movement. In other words, the line movement was right. Everybody would say that that was a Billy play. Yeah. On every game where the line moved and the team didn't cover, everybody would say that that was a Billy setup. <laughs> yes. So when you do the math – he was 100%. Gotcha. And he basically had people convinced that every game that moved, that one was his, and every game that moved, that was, he set up. So the whole world's thinking he's picking it 100%. Yeah. Now, how did he really do it? The answer to that question is as follows. He had a crew of about six handicappers that were – pretty some respected some known some not as known and he would get their games 
every day or week or however, depending upon what the sport was. And on the games where where they all matched up, those were the games that Billy was betting. On the games where there was maybe just one guy on a side or there were, you know, maybe one guy on one side and one guy on another side, Billy would, he still was obligated to get the handicappers down on their games because whatever they liked, he would still play for them. So basically what he would do is he would, you know, if a handicapper liked the game and nobody else liked it, he would give that game out to one of his places to move the game. And maybe sometimes he'd keep a little bit for himself. And, and after the line moved, he'd just buy it back and go in even on it. Mm. But those were like the, I guess you could call them the setup games because he wasn't, even though he looked like he was on them, he really wasn't on them. He was just moving them for the handicapper. He got so much respect that they would move so hard that it would set up a profitable middle. Exactly. And he, the only ones he was really on were the ones that. Um, the wisdom of the crowd. The well, right when the, everybody would match up, and uh, I mean, I, I know I was at his house one day. Where, where I, one day I got to work from his house with his wife there, and one of the handicappers called up to bet a game and it was one of these teams like that loses every week you know mm-hmm. and he says he says okay and he gets off the phone with the guy and as soon as he hangs up the phone he says this guy wants bet that team again well he can have that motherfucker or whatever however <laughs> he put it he says he can have that I don't want no parts of that team. And then he goes and he put the order out to bet that just for the for that handicapper. He didn't have any of it on any of it for himself. So that was how he, you know, dodged and shaked and um, did his uh, his magic. Beautiful. So this is such a great thing because so many people, like when you hear Billy Walters, oh, he's a monster originator and look at him and he's, because this is the most, you know, arguably speaking, you know, you know, the most successful sports better ever. Can we agree on that? I think that's uh, reasonable. And very, what did, very reasonable to say. And, and what, and, and what did he do? He just, Used the cons- looked at a consensus pick and he surrounded himself with the best of the best and used the consensus, used the wisdom of the crowd. Um, but he also, but he also used the, you know, I mean, it was almost like, um, you know, how people will leak a little piece of information about the company and then cause a stock to a run on the stock. Well, yeah, of course. He had the same thing, but before the days of social media, he still basically commanded the same type of uh, a thing where he could cause basically the sportsbook lines or stock market, so to speak, 
I move. It's 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 you're revealing the magic trick and how it works. It just takes a lot of the oomph or the the pizzazz out of like, oh my god, because you know. Obviously, you know, at, at one point there, there there was a computer and the computer would spit out numbers and the computer was strong, but it got to the point where the computer became, you know, just one factor and you needed more. And, and, and you know, you're saying six handicappers. Did that ever grow? Did it ever go? Did it ever get more or less? Or? Sometimes it sometimes it was like it, it could have been less. I, I'm using that as just an estimated number. It could have been as you know as low as four. Uh, it could have been as many as seven or eight at, at times. Gotcha. Um, and I'm I'm, assu I'm assuming some would be great just the college hoops. Some would be great just the college football. Yes, that that is absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. There's one in particular that was um, that was a a college basketball guy who did some time uh, doing stuff for Billy. That was a he's one of the I kind of met him through the years. He was friends with uh, with Wally, and um, he uh, used to just come out. To Vegas, he lived on the East Coast, and he used to just drive out to Vegas every year for college basketball season. And uh, he was—they all said he was—he was the best. And uh, I never—he always seemed to me like he was high on something. So I never like could get wrap my head around respecting anything that he said. And never got into following him, but he was still considered to be college basketball about the one of the best that there was. And I know he had uh, that. Plus, you know, Billy also had, the, you know, the whatever was left of the computer. Now, here's a so obviously Billy would never let the other handicappers ever speak to each other or know of each other. Uh, I would say, for the most part, that's pretty accurate. Now, and did, that's not to stop them from knowing of each other, anyway. Though. Gotcha. Because did Billy make each handicapper feel as if they were the only one, or you know, did they make them feel special? Okay. Uh, well, Billy had a a very charismatic, charming way about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, and really, to sit down. Like if you went out to dinner with him and you could just sit and listen to him tell stories all night long. He was that charismatic and and to listen to and everything like that. So he had a way of I'm sure of making everybody feel pretty good about themselves. I love it. So fascinating, you know, and, and you had the inside, you had, you were right there, the inside track. You saw, you were behind the curtain, so to speak. You saw how and, it all and, played out. And having worked for Billy was kind of like the, the last chapter in my education before uh, I became independent. All right. So you leave Billy, you work for him one year, you, you make a nice turn. Billy, let, let's just, for some people that don't know, what was the deal? He would make a season-long deal where he'd give you a piece. How did it work? Okay, Billy, I had um, a deal like 
with the businessman, where which everybody that kind of worked for him, any if you brought in your own outs, you would get a a percentage of what you won with those guys, and so. But what was what always one of the problems like the businessman would always run into would be stuff like you know the games would go really good so they would beat the bookmaker but then the guy who was putting the games in would be betting his own stuff too and lose half the money back and then they still couldn't collect the money because you see what I'm saying? The yeah, guy yeah. Would, so they would run into that problem. That, that was a classic problem gotcha. that um, would be run into, but I never, I never had that problem. And I was, I had the cushiest deal of all. I had uh, the guys that I had put together over time, my small time players I used to call them, I used to call them the ABC guys. And that's just, I don't know where the name came from. That's just what I called them. And um, I got a 50% free roll on those guys. Wow. And now the businessman gave me that deal just because, you know, he wanted to take care of me. But when I moved over to Billy, there were two things that um, I had in my contract. And number one was when I was with the, the businessman, because I dealt with a lot of, a lot of money. At one point he decided that um, he wanted to get a life insurance policy on me. So I made a deal. I got, I went and found the place and I got a, a $2 million life insurance policy. On. But the deal was that any money that he, he was only to use that money. If something happened to me for any money that he couldn't recover of what I was supposed to be holding. And, and then the remainder of that was supposed to go to my stated beneficiary. So I only would do, did the deal under the promise that he wasn't going to, he can't make money. He can't make money off my dad. Yes. And uh, when, when that came up or the, at the, at the time, I think, well, now I'm trying to remember, but I remember the partner, the lion, said, when we first, actually, this was before, I think, him and the lion became partners, I, I think was when we had uh, set up this thing. And the lion's comment was, oh, wow, that's a pretty good bet. Can I get in on that? <laughs> and I was like, no, that's not the point. This is not a bet. So, um, when I went to work for Billy, I had two, uh, two requirements. One, he had to continue to pay that life insurance policy. 
And two, he had to give me a 50% free roll on my outs, which he did. And at the end of the year, which he lost, he whined and whined about having to pay me. <laughs> and, um, and then the next year, he didn't want to do the life insurance policy and he didn't want to and it give me the 50% free roll. And I said, well, then we'll find somebody else. Describe the day to day. Like what happens on a typical day? You're just, you know, sitting around prime time and you get a call. And a lot of times, maybe sometimes you'd get the call and he'd, have, he'd call you up and say, you know, Pittsburgh minus two, go. Other times, he'd have you on hold and three other people on hold. And then they give you all Pittsburgh minus two at the same time. And then everybody goes. And, you know, the object was. You know, you call everybody you can as fast as you can. And then, you know, sometimes you were calling people that were calling people. And then you were calling people that were calling people that were calling people. And it was like a, it was like a phone chain. And, you know, the higher up the chain you got to the call, the better chance you had of getting down before the line moved. So, so, but how, how would you get paid a fixed salary? Would, I know you're out. You said you got a 50% free roll. Anything you turn in. Is there a free roll at the end of the year? How does that work? Yeah, the free roll was at the end of the year. And then I was also, I would also get a, a salary on top of that. Gotcha. Do you mind telling the, like, just, you know, revealing some of the numbers? Like what kind of, what, what percentages, just percentage wise? I was cheap. I was cheap. I was just making a, a salary. I was, I would get like a, my recollection is I don't think I was ever paid more than a thousand a week. But how about the free roll? Well, the free roll is fifty percent. No, on your outs, but was there any? How about the stuff that you turned in? No, the stuff that I turned in, betting his own outs—that was his stuff. Oh, so you bet his own outs? Uh, so sometimes he would give me outs to call for him too. I mean, that gotcha. was part of my job. Gotcha. I wasn't controlling any runners for him, so I was strictly just calling my guys and guys for him because gotcha. I didn't want to go work in that office. Gotcha. Now, you know, given that you have this information, do you ever, is there a temptation there to keep a bit for yourself or you know what you're saying with my outs, I already have a 50% free roll. There's no need to do so. Right. Never was tempted to go out and bet on my own. I never got everybody else. Everybody it seemed like almost everybody I ever came across always had to do that. I never had that temptation to do that well you made a great deal for yourself where you already had uh, you know 50 percent free roll is very strong now i hear yeah. i hear you know guys that you know i would hear 20 percent was a number that was floating around um he was good there was 30 some of the you know and if you really had some some weak guys you know you could get 30 there was a guy we had um, who had some outs and they were in um, like a little town of Reading, Pennsylvania and this guy Lou was um, he 
these outs were like crazy. Like they, I mean, like they were literally taking them out of the newspaper, but they, they were like taken out of them, like a local writing newspaper, not like <laughs> even a national paper. Yeah. I mean, I don't know where they were getting these numbers from. And the funny thing about Lou was like, let's say Lou's, let's say it was like a football game and Lou's guy had a two and the line was, the real line was four, right? Mm. So you would tell Lou, lay the two. You know, I mean, you didn't need Billy to bet the game or anybody sharp to bet the game. You know, if the game's four everywhere, it's an NFL game, you lay two. Okay? Mm. Well, if Lou didn't like the side, he wouldn't bet it. Nah, that's great. He wouldn't bet it. Nothing you could do could you get him to bet a side if he didn't like the side. Amazing. And he had these these outs that were that were unbelievable. I have another question about Billy. So I also hear now the common thing again that I, all the rumors I hear. This is all just the stuff I've heard over the years that Billy would sometimes, if he was up with one guy in the middle of the year, he would start giving opposites to the guy just to get him out of the or, or you know other sides of middles or something just to get him out of the liability of a free roll. Is there any truth to that? Well, I can't couldn't prove that one way or another mm -hmm. but it certainly you know would be in his modus operandi gotcha. i mean yeah. let's put it this way the the rumor that about him that was spread the most was that if he thought he could get more money down on a game he would give his grandmother the wrong side yeah so, based on that, <laughs> you know, you could do the math. Yeah. Understood. Well, you, listen, you don't uh, you don't get to be the best by being the nicest guy in the room, I guess, right? Well, I don't know about that. All right. Depends if I ever became the best or not. <laughs> okay, so now... You're on your way to becoming unbelievable because now all right, you're leaving Billy. You're starting to go independent now. This is it. You've gotten traded by some of the biggest names of the business. The businessman who was, you know, legendary with his crew. And now, you know, you got a little bit with the lion and the lion is a legendary uh, uh, name in, in the business. Um and I'm, by the way, I'm just, these are, I, I'm, I, I know who you're talking about. I'm just, you know, obviously, and you're given enough clues for me to go along with you. Right, so right, right, you. right. Gotcha. Right. And, and, and now, so, okay, so now you're, you're rolling, you're rolling solo. Um, and, and by now, the way, the, the, the New York guy that was the original contact of the businessman, mm -hmm. I knew him as well. I got to know him as well. Gotcha. So and I what, had a, what, do we, what do we know him as? His name was Buddy. Buddy, gotcha. That's his. That was. He, he's not alive anymore. So. Oh, is this the Buddy that I that that. Uh, the Buddy from the offshore world, or no? Yeah, he he just uh, died in a 
few years back. Oh, okay. Maybe so this is Buddy. This is this now. is okay. So this is Buddy from uh, from the offshore world, who is a legendary bookmaker. Everybody knew Buddy. So that that's that's a that's a very sharp guy. So and I'm going to tell you something, Buddy. One of the things that pieces of advice that I got from Buddy many many years ago, mm-hmm. which was one of the which was really a, a, I think an invaluable piece of advice. And that's a lot of times, sometimes you get a piece of information about a game and then you go to bed it and then something happens and the line moves the other way. And immediately, oh, gosh, crap, I got to get off of this. Because, you know, there's something wrong with it. And you try to do your research and figure out, well, why are they betting the other side of this game? I mean, your information checks out and there's somebody just whacking the crap out of the other side of the game. And the piece of advice I got from Buddy was, he says, at least when you bet something, at least you know why you bet it. And to me, that, that kind of said something like, you know, just because the reason the game's moving maybe because I got the piece of information that they don't have. So at least I know why I'm betting. And I don't know, I don't know why they're betting. Mm. So as a piece of advice, I found that to be helpful over the years. Gotcha. Good advice. All right. So, so now you have all these connections. You're independent now. Um, this is when you really start like blowing up now. Let's describe that. How was it like going solo? Okay. This is, uh, and this is just, uh, me and my wife uh, at the time. And, you know, we're not, we're not a, a big crew. We're not a big bankroll, but, you know, we're going out there and I'm sending her around as my runner. And sending her to the various casinos to check the lines. And most of the sports books, they loved her. And she was real sociable with them. So she got along real well with everybody. And so just starting out on my own, you know, if I would bet, you know, betting a thousand or two thousand a game, that was, that, that was like a big bet for me. But as my training under the businessman went, like if the line, you know, let's say, you know, the line's four or you can lay four and, you know, the line out everywhere is like five and a half, six. Okay. And it's good for 5,000. I can't just bet 2,000 because that's how much I bet on a game. Mm-hmm. I gotta bet. I gotta bet five thousand. I can't waste that three thousand dollars of of minus four because if I bet two thousand, they're gonna move the line, mm-hmm. and it's good for five. So how can I only bet? I have to bet the five. So what I would do was I would constantly overbet good games or good bets, and then I would you know, call around to, you know, I talked to the businessman, I talked to the lion, I talked to, um, 
other people and I'd say, Hey, Hey, you know, I laid four on this game, but I got too much. Could you, could you use a dime on it? And they'd be like, yeah, yeah. You kidding? Yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, you give out little trinkets here and little trinkets there. And, and it kept me, you know, and then time when I need something or I get stuck on something, they're there to help me or whatever the case may be. If they got information on something, they're likely to share it with me. Beautiful. So I was able to establish overbetting as a way to promote my working relationships. Perfect. Now, how was the profit going? The profit was going was going really well. Um, at this time, the the lion was was now in Vegas, and he kind of had his own crew. And um, I would work with him from time to time, but I was always on top of the information and. The reason is that when I, the year I worked for Billy, I became really good friends with this guy named Gary. And Gary was the guy who was in charge of Billy's runners. And all Billy's runners had alphanumeric pagers. And so when they would go out on a game, they would type in the play, like Pittsburgh minus two. And boom, it would come out over the alphanumeric pager. And the runners would go, like they had a group page or whatever, they would send it out. They'd all get it at the same time. And they all go to the window and get it. It was pretty strong. Well, Gary hooked me up with a pager. Oh, yeah. Now, never paid him for it. Never. He just did it to me as a friend. I didn't believe in... Um, to me, if I were to pay him to give me a clone of Beeper or something like that, that would have been unethical. But for him to just do it to help me out, that I felt was more than ethical. So a lot of times I would know what the play was before, way before you would see it moving. And at the time, the lion was out in Vegas. He was trying to, and him and Bill, Billy really didn't like it, but he was trying to move for Billy. But he liked to bet, you know, he was his own better. So <coughs> if he would see the line moving before Billy called to give him an order, he, he would try to bet the game himself. You know, and then Billy would get mad. Hey, you can't go bet those outs. Those are like my outs. Well, they're your outs. The argument would be, well, they're your outs after you tell me what the play is. But if you haven't told me what the play is, then, you know, they're, they're fair game. So they would go on back and back and forth and back and forth and they would have those arguments and and stuff like that. And every, you know, every now and then I'd stir the pot up. Like there'd be a game that would be moving and 
you know, sometimes they would call me to bet, and I'd like, I'd be careful with that game. Like it would, like they would hit it like really hard on the screen, but it would not. It didn't come over to beeper. Well, if it didn't come over to beeper, then it, there's something up, and it might sit there for ten minutes. When eventually they come back the other way, and I'd be like, nah, I'd be careful with that. And I was always dead on with my information, mm. but I never told anybody I had that beeper, and I tried not to abuse it to the point where I would get. Like it would get figured out and I would get caught. I mean, not like, you know, caught to the point where I, Gary would call me and say, Hey, what, what are you doing? I'm going to have to get that paper back because you're abusing it. So I never gotten myself into that position. How long did you have the beeper for? Well, I had it for that whole, that whole year. Um, or two, it might have even been two years, I forget. But, until I had it until until Gary finally went bad and left Philly. Um, but uh, there was um, a night that Billy Billy used to hate when people were trying to follow him and. There was finally one day, because it was really coming to a head with this thing. There was one day where I just decided, like, I was going to – I kept giving the play to the Lion before, before – I kept beating Billy to the call. And I was beating – I was calling him with the play, like, two minutes before Billy would call. And – Like sometimes he would just he didn't even want when the phone rang he wouldn't even answer the phone sometimes because he already knew what the play was he's not going to sit there he didn't want to give Billy anything because Billy was calling him late and so one day Billy decided that he's going to shake all the followers and um he sends out all kinds of phonies and he like he'll call he calls the lion with some plays and stuff like that and they call me and I'm saying nope didn't um didn't didn't I, I don't think that's a play and so anyway there was about three games and on each game, the lion aggressively either turned in the side that he knew was going to end up being the wrong side, while at the same time he was, as the line was moving, he was betting the the other side. Oh my god! And then, of course, then when he would come back with the other side the game was was already was already moving and it was anyway the bottom line is that day the three games that Billy decided to do that with all fell oh my God. 
I had the biggest single day I ever had in my life for one uh, at that time for for one day for middle middle in those three games plus then I messed around with the Hawaii game in the middle of the middle of that night too and um, there was a a phone call from Billy to the lion the next day and the, the lion was like playing dumb with him or whatever and he goes I don't and they had this on tape I, I'm sure the tape doesn't exist anymore but the, the basic conversation between the lion and Billy was something like I don't know what's what's going on but I'm going to shake all these followers. I don't care how much I got to juice I got to burn and how much I got to spend, but I'm going to break every one of these some bitches and, and <laughs> they're just laughing because they just like crushed it. Yeah. So oh, that's good. That was kind of the end of the the Billy days. Billy cared more about shaking the followers. They, uh, he, some, he, some, was. he really like that was like such a big, big thing for him. Even more, you know, they don't, I don't think even more so, but it was right up there with earning. It, it, it was. It was like a, a thing of pride with him. Yeah. Um, That's what Spiro once told me. Spiro told me, he asked Billy, he said, Billy, you know, what do you like more, winning or, uh, or messing with people's heads? And Billy said it's probably an equal proposition. You know, it's funny you mention that guy. <laughs> There's a guy whose head I like. That's a guy whose head I really enjoyed messing with. Um, and by the way, he's the nicest guy. I actually, I went down to meet him once. Played some backgammon with him in his office. Um, had a really nice time with him. But when it came to betting, we used to we used to have our our battles, and I used to I used to kind of torture him. And part of it was because of the way he had his office like set up, because it was like he would sit at a front desk, and then you know he had all the clerks in, in his office, and then they would you know call stuff out, and then he'd have to give it approval and stuff like that so a lot of times for whatever reason he would say you know what i don't want you playing here anymore and he'd, he'd throw me out and so as soon as i get thrown out i would call in and the clerk would say i'm sorry sir your account's no longer active i said oh it's not could you find out why please and then the clerk would get up and go bother him at the front desk and ask. <laughs> and then I would go and I'd call back and I'd ask and I'd get a different clerk and I'd do the same thing. And then sometimes, because I had several telephones, I would sit there prime time and I'd like be calling them on five phones at once, tying up the phones. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I always got back in. But then there was one time I did this to the Atlanta-Denver Super Bowl. He 
right before post, he put up eight and a half. He went to eight and a half. And for the most part, that game was seven with a few seven and a half popping up. And he put up an eight and a half right before post. And I bet a hundred thousand plus ten and a half minus fifty buying two points. And naturally I lost they lost the game thirty-four nineteen. I so I lost lost that bet. A year later I was betting something and I wanted to buy two points. And they told me you're not allowed to buy two points. So I said, okay. And then I called back and I got the claim department on the line. And I said, and I referred him back to the bet from a year, a year ago. And I said that the, I've been waiting on for my refund check of a hundred dollars. <laughs> and they said, for what? And I said, well, I bought two and a half points on the, on that Super Bowl, but you guys, or I bought two points, but you guys don't sell two points. So that was a mistake. And Spiro's aware of that and he's approved sending, refunding my money. You just have to go get him to, to issue the check. Mm-hmm. I've been waiting. Yeah. And so I'm just waiting for the day that, like, I kept breaking their balls and breaking their till, And I only wish I had a fly on the wall for to see the look on his face when the poor clerk finally walked in to ask him to authorize this check to me. Yeah, he, he, but he, needless he, to say, he never. But I had that argument with him. Well, why can't I buy two? Why was I allowed to buy two points and lose? Hundred fifty thousand. I can't buy two points on on something else. But then I got him one time on what I call the round robin parlay of death. It was a Saturday morning, and uh, you know I was back in again with Spiro after my many times in and out. And um, I was looking at the lines that morning, college basketball. And I noticed there was a bunch of underdogs that were um, in the neighborhood of like 14 to 15 point underdogs that were all 10 to 1 on the money line. And it seemed... I mean, you know, a little high, but not, uh, you know, I mean, usually you don't win those things. And so I did a little bit of quick math, and I said, well, if you play a $500 parlay with two teams that are 10 to 1, it's going to pay out 60000 So I said, all right, if I do it, a round robin parlay, all the two team combinations of those five games. That's going to cost $5,000, those 10 combinations. I said, then I could bet each one of those games straight up for 1000 apiece on the money line. So if all five games lose, okay, I'm out 10000 If I win, 
one game, I'm up a thousand. If I get lucky and win two games, I hit a parlay for sixty thousand. I win two bets for ten thousand. That's eighty. Less what I lose on the eight, less four thousand for the eight five hundred dollar parlay. So, and then I didn't want to bet the, I wanted to bet all the straight bets last because if I bet them first, they would move the line and get less value on the parlays. If I just bet the parlay, the line will never move. So I call up and I bet the round robin parlay. And I get that through no problem. And then I called up, and then I bet each one of those games individually for a thousand. So the games start on Saturday. And the first game wins. And then the second game wins. So I've got two in. If I hit the third one, if I hit a third one, that's going to be 60-60 and 60. Or it's going to be three parlays. It's going to be an extra another hundred twenty thousand dollars. Not to mention the three straight bets, ten, ten, ten. Well, after the second one hits and it's already, you know, it's going to be sixty. It's already up eighty thousand. My phone rings. <laughs> Which, by the way, I didn't even know he had my phone number because I was on. I was in. Uh, I wasn't even in Vegas at the time. That that day, I made that bet. And he happened to have my cell number. I don't know how he got it or where he got it from. And my phone rings. And he says, what the hell did you do to me? <laughs> he says, you bet these parlays? You're, you're I said, well, what's the problem? He says, what do you mean? You can't bet like that. I said, I said to him, I said, let me ask you a question. If all the games lost, will we be having this conversation? Which he couldn't really answer that question. And anyway, he was pissed. Needless to say, I got tossed out again. And uh, the last three games, we were all win all were winning in the second. None of them won, but they were all winning in the second half. <laughs> so he had the sweat of a lifetime there um, and he was not happy oh. and then the, the straw that broke the camel's back with us was the I came up with this I noticed that 20 was such a popular number on first half and in NFLs especially back then because the the scoring was, um, you know, it wasn't as high as it is now. So 20 was a real popular number. And if you stop and think about it, if the first two scores of the game aren't two field goals or two touchdowns, and it's a field goal and a touchdown, then no matter what the third score is, you're alive for the fourth score to put the game on 20. Yeah. And I said – there's just got to be something to that. So all these games that were 19 and a half, 20, 20 and a half, I 
said to him, I said, How about, I want to bet over 19 and a half and under 20 or 20,000 each way, risking 2,000. And we would do, we did this, and I, you know, I'd hit one every now and then. And, and then one Sunday, I hit three of them, and he went crazy. <laughs> and one time I talked him into 23, 24, and that hit the first time I did it. <laughs> so, yeah, he definitely was, he paid his dues. He paid his tuition. But but, but meanwhile, he he got all my Super Bowl money. Yeah. By the way, that Denver Super Bowl. I have to say something else about that Denver Super Bowl. And this haunts me as as much money as I lost on that game. Taking the ten and a half minus fifty, I had bet a lot of money on a point spread prop on Atlanta plus fourteen and a half minus probably around two to one or two twenty or something like that, which was actually a really good price. And I don't know if you remember that game, but the score was thirty four. 13 late and Atlanta's driving for the backdoor touchdown. They score the backdoor touchdown. And to this day, and I still have never gotten an explanation for it. It's never been talked about by anybody that ever watched the game or analyzed the game or commentators that watched the game. Dan Reeves went for two. Instead of kicking the extra point to be down 14, he went for two and didn't get it and lost by 15. When I don't know what the point would have been to be down 13 at that point. <laughs> I have no idea why he ever went for two there. It doesn't make sense to me. It never made sense to me and cost me another boatload. Oh, you always remember the big one with the. the Not to mention. Not to mention. At the time, I was seeing this this girl from out of town that I had met at the Duke Diet and Fitness Center when I was there over the summer. And we were, I mean, she wanted to get married and she was really, uh, like, she was pushing me to get engaged and everything like that. And she... After, like, I, I took such a bath on that Super Bowl. And then she said to me, well, what did you think was going to happen if you bet against John Elway? <laughs> and I didn't talk to her for three weeks. <laughs> and eventually, by the, by the summer, I broke up with her. Couldn't, couldn't take it. So I'm not in... I'm not into bad beat stories, but I remember you telling me one that was uh, where something bounces off somebody's helmet and it was like a college football overtime. And it, it, I remember you telling me like the craziest one. Um, do you know what I'm talking about or no? I don't remember that, but I'll tell you what I think what my mind is the worst beat I ever took in a game. And this is shortly after I was on my own. It was August 11th, 1995. Wow. The Dodgers 
were playing, I believe it was the Cardinals, Hideki Nomo was pitching. The total that day was like six and a half, seven under 30, something, you know, really, really like low. And I had a guy that used to give me the totals on a baseball game, and they were all 11 to 10, and the guy gave me seven and a half. Now, under seven and a half flat on a game that's six and a half, seven under 30 is a huge, huge advantage. So I had the under, and the score was two nothing going into the eighth inning. And then the Dodgers scored a run in the bottom of the eighth, made it two to one. And then the game goes into the bottom of the ninth. And the first player for the Dodger uh, gets out. He either struck out or it was a close play at first, but it was a controversial play. Tommy Lasorda comes out. He's arguing. Um, and there had been something that went on like the inning before that was a big brouhaha thing. So tensions were really high in the game. And now Lasorda gets ejected in the ninth inning with one out. And it happened to be ball day. And the fans started pelting the field with the baseball. Yes, I remember this. And they, the umpires, made him forfeit the game two to one with one out in the ninth. <laughs> and I ended up with no bet because they didn't play the full nine innings. Oh. Now, I, I can't think of a crazier way to lose a bet than that. Yeah, that's pretty bad. Pretty bad, brother. <laughs> so, all right. Um, so, okay. Um, so now this is like we're, we're now into the two thousands. Um, you're on top now. You're you're moving and shaking. You get all the info. You're betting in Vegas, very deep um, offshore world. You're getting a lot of the info. Um, let's talk about that time. How you know um, anything come to mind early in the in the two thousands? Um, you know, right around the nine eleven. I remember nine eleven. Um, I remember you had a story about somewhere around nine eleven. I remember you telling me. Well, yeah, that was the, the, the what I call the real crime that took place that week. Not the that week. Not to belittle the events of nine yeah. eleven, but on Monday morning, September third, there was a guy that worked for me. His name was um, Barry. And he was, I knew him back in the days of the, um, of the businessman, we had come in contact with the guy in Reno who used to have access to the games and he knew a guy and, and the guy that he knew that had access to the games. Anyway, he had a guy who would be in Vegas, and I got to I got to know that guy, and became friends with that guy. And over the years, after that whole the guy that we knew in Reno ended up dying, 
and um, I ended up becoming friends with with Barry. And I mean, I met his you know his family, I you know his wife. I he had two dogs, a Shih Tzu and a Nikita, and they would come to I would I would babysit them, and they would stay at my house. And, you know, they I mean, it was a it was a pretty good relationship. I'd take him out to dinner all the time and everything like that. But Barry was, um, he uh, kind of had a, a not so good side to him after all. And he eventually, he used to like to cheat on his wife and, um, which I, you know, I just stayed out of that. I didn't want to get involved in that. Um, anyway, he got hooked up with this cocktail waitress that he liked or, or whatever and decided to run off with her one day. But the day he decided to run off with her was after I gave him his money on Monday morning with, you know, a lot of the tickets from the weekend to cash out, stuff like that. And he just went out, cashed out everything, and skipped out with with the girl. And it was not a it was a huge, huge hit for me. And then of course nine eleven happened, you know, eight days later, so it's not like Who's going to go? There was so much going on in the world. Like, you can't even hire. Who's going to care about tracking this guy down? So, eventually, I had him. I tracked him down. I had a private investigator and um, I tracked him down and uh, I sued him in open court. And um, I did win the judgment against him. I never got paid anything, but I did win a judgment against him and the girl he ran off with. And I don't know, that money supposedly accrues on a regular basis, but uh, the funny part about all that was he sent me a Facebook friend request. <laughs> I have not accepted it. I have had, I did uh, have a Facebook chat with him and confronted him about it all. And I mean, he's really, he seems, he feels like he was owed, owed that money. But, uh, you know, that wasn't, wasn't the case. And, uh, when he left though, when he left town though, he, I mean, the one thing he did was he left the Akita with me when he skipped down. I had possession of the Akita, so I mean, I did take good care of the dog in the aftermath. Ouch. That was the biggest runner robbery you've had? Yeah, most expensive dog ever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was the, the biggest... Um, Definitely the biggest robbery that I ever uh, was involved with. Um, there, there were a few, a few other incidences. Um, 
there was one where the businessman had sent a somebody out to work full time who was uh, related to his wife somehow. I don't know, it was a cousin or a nephew or, or something like that. So he sends this guy out to work. So, I mean, I assume this guy's being sent out from there. Like, I could trust this guy. I don't have to worry about this guy at all. I can trust him implicitly because of where he's coming from. So, at the time, there was a lot of, we were on a, there was a lot of heat around with the crews having legal issues and stuff like that. So we were kind of on a real like skeleton crew and skeleton work schedule. And basically I would just drive around town with the, the nephew and he would just run in casinos, check the line and come back out. And if we had to bet something, he would run in bet it and come back out. So this this guy, and you know what? He if he had ever filled out my job application, we could have gotten rid of him right away because this guy had a big affinity for the strip clubs. Mm. So he never had any never had any money. And um so this one day we're we're driving around and he was in the, you know, he was in the casino. He comes back out, and now we're done. Now we're done for the day. And I said to him, I said, I know he doesn't have any money. I said, you need any money to get by for the day or anything like that? And he says yes. So I reach into my pocket to take out some money. And I had had a pack of 5000 in cash on me. And I reached back into my pocket, and it's not, I can't find it. And then I remembered that I had put it on the seat when he was inside a casino. I had put it on a seat when I was on the phone or something like that. So now I'm thinking, well, maybe he got in the car, he sat on it, he got out of the car, it fell out. So. We search the whole car. We search, we search him. He empties his pockets. He's like, but he was like, what do you think? I took it here. He's like, he's so quick to show me his pockets that he kind of raised a red flag in my eyes. But the bottom line is this money is gone. Where did it go? It's not, it's not there. So in my head, I'm trying to figure out where the money could be if he took the money. And then I remember when he ran into the Rio hotel, he seemed like he was in there for a long time and we had safe deposit boxes. in there. So I said to myself, well, he could have gone in there and he could have dropped the money in the safe deposit box and then he's going to go get it later. So I asked him if he had, the keys to his safe deposit box with him. And he tells me no, which why wouldn't he have those with him? He has his keys to his apartment. I'm sure it's on the same ring. He says no. 
I said, where are you? He says, it's there, my apartment. I didn't think I'd need it today. I said, oh, okay. Well, let's go get it. He says, why is that? I says, I got some. I says, we're trying to beef up our security out here. And I got these all these extra keys I have to my boxes. I need them locked in a safe place. So we're going to lock them in your box. So he says, okay. And I go back to his apartment and he goes in and he comes back out. And now I said to myself, if this guy took the money, the last thing he's going to want me to do is go in there with him to his safe deposit box. So as soon as I pulled back up to the Rio, he immediately reaches out and says, all right, here, give me the keys. I'll run in and do it. And I said, well, I'm going to come in with you because I have to grab something out of my box, too. And now we're walking in. And he says to me, he says, you think I took the money, don't you? I said, well, we're going to find out when you open your box, aren't we? <laughs> and he opened this box and there was the money. Wow. And if I don't put that together right there, I don't catch him. So he opens a box, the money's there. What does he say to you? He basically didn't. He says, there, are you happy? And like walked oh out, God. basically. Like, like it was my fault. Where do you find these people? Oh, not me. Was I went back to the businessman. Oh, that's a where, business where, where, where do you find these people? That's exactly what I said. And the businessman would say, yeah, it's my fault for hiring somebody like that. Now, there was another guy <laughs> that worked for the businessman that, you know, he was one of these guys that I told you about earlier that he would call his outs and bet. But then he was betting his own stuff on top of it. And would, so when he thought, so when the businessman thought that, you know, they'd won, he'd, he'd find out that they'd actually lost or you know they owed the bookmaker instead of collecting because the guy bet his own stuff so he says to me i get a call from business look i got a guy i want to send him out there and i i knew the guy i met him i i, I know him and he's he's really a, a nice guy and they sent the guy out to me and my job was to keep him working, but keep him from getting into trouble so that he could work off what he owed. Now, at the time, my wife had befriended a, a, a poker player who was in a wheelchair that had one leg. And he had, we had moved him into an apartment that was right like almost catty corner to where our apartment was. So what we did was we took the guy, this guy, and we moved him in with the one-legged guy. And his deal was, and whatever he wanted, we'd take him to the supermarket whenever he wanted. He could spend whatever he wanted on groceries. He could spend whatever he wanted on movie rentals. And every morning... I would give him um, $10 and he would have to take the $10, take a bus downtown to the horseshoe, call in the lines from there, which I had a phone account. So if I had to bet something, I could bet over the phone. 
And all he had to do was just call on the lines all day and come home. And out of that $10, he had his bus fare and he had to eat lunch. And, and they would come home at the end of the day, every day. And, uh, and that was the, that was the program I had him on. No, couldn't go. I mean, he could go out socially. He really wanted to go any, but he had no money. He never had any money to go anywhere unless he was going to be real frugal with that $10 a day. So he was able to work productively and work off the, uh, the money. So finally, um, one day he calls the businessman back and he says, He'll do, he, he wants to come back. He'll do whatever he has to do. He'll work as many jobs as he has to work. He'll work as hard as he has to work. But he's got to get away from me. He couldn't, he couldn't say, he said, I'd rather, his quote to the businessman, I'd rather go to jail and be cornholed every day than have to do this one more day. I'll do whatever I have to do. And he went back and, and worked everything off and got himself out of the mess he was in. Later then he ended up uh, blowing up again, but that's a whole story for a whole other time. Yeah, typical. Um, I remember, you know, you have a lot of great Wrigley Field stories and and how that came about. You want to get into that a little bit? Wrigley Field became an obsession for the businessman in baseball season. Yeah. And he wanted to know, like, we could never get ahead of the, the wind, whichever way the wind was blowing. By the time we would find out, you know, it'd always be too late. The line would have moved or whatever. So he used to, he started out by sending, he would send, he'd get the schedule and then he would, like he used to fly guys for the weekend out to Vegas. He would fly guys to Chicago to Wrigley Field to go to the games. And they had to get there. They had to get into the bleachers. They had to be there to, as soon as the game opened, hours before the game started. Watch the flag, call in and report like every 15 minutes. They would count the number of home runs hit out during batting practice. I mean, it was like a, a science that they had. And they would do that. And the, the problem, I have to say, the, the businessman's obsession was, he, there was more often than not, it would just be a case of no play. And a lot of times he would find a way to talk himself into, into betting something anyway, because he had all the, you know, went through all the trouble for the information. Mm-hmm. So... And we used to mock him a little bit about that, <laughs> which reminds me about him in parlays. But that's a whole not, that's a that's a little short story I'll give you after. But um, so eventually they met a guy named George down in uh, in, in Chicago, who was a local. He lived there. And he um, 
George was uh, would go to the games and he would call in the weather and you know we had a regular live-in Wrigley Field guy and this guy was local he loved it he used to go to the games himself anyway when we would you know buy his tickets for him and he would go to the games and we used this guy for several years and then once in a while if the the wind would change or something like that we would be like wondering if he was really there (laughs) so it turns out we discover on the internet that Wrigley Field had put an internet camera in and you could see see the stands from the internet camera before the game you could see the bleachers so you could take this camera and you could zoom in on a section of the bleachers live stream so when this guy was supposed to be there, we had somebody every day who was logged into the live stream and he had to go to the spot where we were looking to verify that he was there. What year are we talking about? This was in the early nineties. This is this is pre Billy. Well you have wait a minute. What do you mean there's no internet early nineties? This was in the internet was there was dial up internet. It was it was ninety let me see, ninety had to be like ninety four ish. Okay. In that in that range. Gotcha. There 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 was there was there was internet. With a live stream camera, geez, that's really like that was rare. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't that sophi- I mean, that sophisticated, but it was like a, a place you could go in and it was on their their website or whatever. And uh, but it, it was it was out there. You couldn't get the camera to, to focus right on the flag though. Like it, it only would do in the stands. So, okay, so, so you see the guy does the guy show once a year does he go there? Yeah, yeah, he he was uh, he was always there. So anyway, eventually down the road, this guy got a little greedy, wanted more money, and and we weren't really winning on the Wrigley Field bets anyway. So the businessman kind of scratched the idea for a while, and then we had a guy named Steve that was working for us, and. This was um, this is when uh, the businessman was partners with the Lions, and we had this guy Steve out in Vegas uh, working for us. I forget how we got him. And on Vegas or Chicago, he was in Vegas. Gotcha. But then one day he decided to play blackjack and. Got himself stuck, stuck like five thousand, whatever it was. Owned up to it, whether it was five thousand, eight thousand, whatever it was. So, I came up with the following solution. <laughs> I said, "Tell you what, here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna go to Chicago. You're gonna go to Chicago. You got. He had a car. 
I said, you're going to drive to Chicago. You're going to find a job that doesn't interfere with the home games at Wrigley Field. You're going to find yourself a place to live. And then whenever there's a home game at Wrigley Field, you've got to be at the game in the stadium, you know, to call in the weather. So he goes to Chicago. He gets a place. He finds job waiting tables or something. Not, you know, when the games are going or delivering pizzas or whatever he was doing. And uh, on game days, he's, He's there and he'd call in. And so there's this one day that he, I happened to be out of the town, out of town. So somebody else was dealing with the guy and they called him up and he said the wind was blowing in and he swore the wind was blowing in and there was no, nobody around to check the camera that day or whatever reason. I forget what happened. I was busy because I was running an errand, so I was driving around in the car and when they were in touch with him and he said the wind was the wind was howling in, he was saying. And he wasn't there. And it turned out the wind was howling out. <laughs> and we had under ten and a half. And I believe Tom Browning was pitching for Cincinnati and he gave up 11 runs in the first day. <laughs> and that was the end of that. And then we just said, that's it. We're done with you and go on your way. And... But if he would have finished out the season, he was going to get, he was going to get paid. His debt was going to be cleared and he was going to get paid for all his time. Yeah. And he, he just screwed it up. Unbelievable. Crazy story, that Wrigley stuff, man. All right. So, um, okay. So I guess um, we could talk about when you and I um, first met. That was like in the mid-2000s, I would say. I'll never forget the first time I, I talked to you and I said, it was, it was like, just like just like yesterday. I'm like, so uh, why do they call you fats? <laughs> And I'll never forget. You said because I'm fucking fat. <laughs> and I just said okay, uh, which was uh, um, that response just is always in my mind. Um, well, you and, know, it's funny because one of the things that I always liked about you was you have a very infectious laugh, and and you always found almost everything I said to be pretty funny. Yeah. I mean, partly because I am pretty funny but absolutely it was uh i always enjoyed making you laugh well i enjoyed hearing you buddy so um all right so yeah so you and i did a lot of stuff together um you know you were helping me get down and you know sharing info and outs and all this other stuff um and uh and not just but you were on you know you were dealing with so many different crews so many different groups you know, right before we get popped, you're uh, you're really like you know you're 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 def you have your hand on the pulse. I was at the top of my game when that happened. I had uh, deals with, I would say maybe five different sharp people, and 
every one of them was was I was getting great information and I was using the information and I was I was making always making money for everybody I worked with. I mean, I would have one guy where he would just he would just bankroll certain things I did. I'd just say, look, I need so much money to, to do some stuff and then I'll put you'll put you in for a percentage of of what I do with the money and he'd be like, No problem. And I always made him money. Um I had another guy that he just liked to you know, he had some games that he would have different guys would call him with that he wanted and uh, that's how I would help that guy get down. I had another guy that liked to get down but he liked to get down so much he didn't care if he had to bet the next number. So I had a lot of times where you know, because I'm entitled to keep some for myself where I can, you know, get a lot of free half points and and free roll some free roll some numbers. So I mean everything was going just smooth as can be. Um and then uh, they knocked on the door one morning. Yep. Everything I was on top, you know, just to, on myself, just to bring bring us back to that time. I, my God, it was just insane. You know, I thought I was untouchable. I, uh, I had, runner, I, I had runners everywhere. I had money everywhere. Like I didn't give a shit. And then it all just came crashing down. So it was, it was a crazy time. Um, all right. So they come knocking on the door. Um, you want to just describe a little bit of that? I never really got into it, you know, uh, uh, you know, to get into detail. I don't think I ever will at this point, unless maybe if I ever, you know, pen a book or something, or maybe do something because it's, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's well, a crazy story, but go ahead. I gotta, when they, um, were coming in first, they, they banged on the door and, we had a a bull mastiff that was my um, son-in-law's dog that was living with us, and he had a mean bark. So when they banged on the door, he was like, Whoa! he was like, man, he was like really barking. So they didn't want to come in with him barking. And my wife said, got up and looked out the window and said, "There's cops everywhere." It's like, all right, they're coming in. So. I had this shoebox in my in my office that um, had uh, you know where I had all the tickets that we'd bet for the week that were you know in action and stuff like that, and I just happened to have it sitting in, in the bedroom, and you know in it I had some chips and a little bit of cash and. But the the big value was all those all those tickets that you know had yet to be played or those those games, and so I'm trying to find out. I got like a minute before they come in. They they, they before they came in, they gave my wife a chance to lock the dog up so that you know they wouldn't have to hurt the dog or anything. And I said, all right, I, I got to hide this. 
but I was smart enough to leave. Um, something behind in the box. So I left them. I had some future tickets. Like I had, that was the year that the, the Redskins with the RG three was a rookie and the Redskins were having that great year. And I had like the Redskins at a hundred to one to win the Super Bowl for like a thousand. So said to win a hundred thousand on the ticket. And then I had another a couple other long shots that, like to win 80,000 or something like that. So I left those future tickets and I left like 5,000 in cash and a couple of chips. And I took everything else and I was trying to figure out where I could hide it, that they might not find it. And in the corner of the bedroom, because I had had recently had a, a surgery and I had some wounds and that where the bandages had to be changed and, so in the corner of the bedroom next to the bed, there was a trash can and in it was like a red or there was, wasn't a trash can. It was a big hamper, which, which was like a mesh. You could see through it. It was white and had holes in it. You could see through it and had a, a big red medical waste trash bag inside of it. And I was thinking, all right, I could put that in there. And I said, no, but if I put that in there and my wife throws the trash out, then she'll throw everything away. So I can't do that. So I just lifted the bag up and I put the stuff under the bag in the bottom of the hamper to put the, that trash back over it and crossed my fingers. What else was I going to do? I was hoping that they figured they found, oh, plus there was, $40,000 sitting in my stepson's room, which they found, which they figured that was the hidden stash. So when they found that, they stopped looking. They never found what was hidden in cash and, t you know, cash and tickets under the um, medical waste. Now, they did a pretty good job of ripping the house apart looking, but they never looked under that medical waste bag. And the funny part was my wife got a receipt of what they took. I'm in jail, so she can't really talk to me. And we can't talk about it on the phone anyway. And she's looking at the receipt of what they took, and she's like, well, there's got to still be something here. So after they left, my wife and her two sons, they ripped the house apart even more trying to find it. They couldn't find it. Amazing. And when I got out three days later, it was still there. And I, that's the only thing that saved me because even though I still lost a lot of money in the, in the deal, I recouped enough from that that I could pay off enough to back to the people whose money um, I had, you know, I was responsible for. Um, to uh, you know, to save myself, but that was a that was a rough that was a rough time. A hundred percent. And then there was you know, trying to explain to them that you didn't do anything wrong. That's a whole nother fight. 
Yeah, they tried to, there's a lot of people that, you know, because I was, I think I was like, I don't think, I'm pretty sure I was like a big target in that. And they, they you know, they kept threatening me that they were going to bring cooperate, you know, everyone's going to cooperate against me. And I remember telling them, I'm like, I don't care who you get to cooperate. As long as they tell the truth, you can have the whole entire, you know, the other 24 people cooperate against me. Just, you know, as long as nobody lies, I have no problem with that. Um, well, <laughs> I had my lawyer, they told me they wanted me to cooperate. Mm-hmm. And I had my lawyer set a meeting with District Attorney Jerry Bray. Mm-hmm. And they explained to me, you know, that they wanted to make me to make a deal to cooperate. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'll do you one better. I don't, I'll cooperate, but I don't want a deal. You can put me on the stand and I'll be more than happy to tell you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and anything you want to know about Spanky. And um, I got I got no allegiance to I'll tell you whatever you want to know. Because I know you were just a better, you weren't doing anything wrong. And Jerry Brave, and this is just an example of how corrupt our legal system is. Jerry Brave, the district attorney of New York, said to me, you know, we can't put you on the stand unless we're sure you understand what the truth really is. (laughs) And I said, I was there. I know what the truth is. They said, well, no, we we understand. They were just basically saying, I have to tell what they think the truth is. Mm. If I want to testify, not, I said, well, look, I said, I, you know, I can't help you with what you think the truth is. I know what the truth is. Uh, I'd be more than happy to testify. I don't need a deal. And um, frankly, I, you know, I wasn't going to make a deal and I held out and held out and held out. I think you were the last guy to settle. And I wouldn't take a deal because I wasn't, because I couldn't stand there in front of a judge and allocute and say, I did something that I didn't do. I just Mm -hmm. didn't do it. So they finally came up with a charge that I could accept. And they charged me with a misdemeanor of, um, it was, uh, let me think here. Basically, I was admitting to being guilty of a crime unspecified. So in other words, during their investigation, I was guilty of a, some, I I admit to committing some crime unspecified, which to my recollection was at some point during their investigation, I drove over the speed limit once. Mm. And so that I was able to do that. But there was another stipulation. And the stipulation was that I wanted them to correct the, that they, what they wrote about me in their initial press release when they referred to me as a bookmaker, because I'm not a bookmaker. And in addition to, the 
that plea deal, I also got the following letter um, from the district attorney's office that says, to whom it may concern, on October 26, 2012, Fats was arrested and charged with money laundering and enterprise corruption under Queens County Indictment Number 2593-2012. As of April 30, 2015, these felony charges have been dismissed against Fats. Additionally, in our initial press release, we referred to Fats as a bookmaker. As the investigation unfolded, it was determined that Fats is not a bookmaker, nor did he act as such within the scope of our investigation. Furthermore, it is the position of this office that Fats conducts himself legally as a professional gambler, and our office has resolved his case with every intention that he'd be allowed to re-engage in that profession. There is nothing in our records that would lead us to believe that Fats would pose any further risk should he be, he be allowed to resume his betting activities. Please contact me if you have any questions or concerns. Susan Sullivan, Assistant District Attorney. Very strong. I wish I had a letter like that. You? I could change your name. I could put your name on here. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, but, but here was the, this was the key, though. This was the kicker. Okay. Mm -hmm. They had confiscated money from uh, my account at the palms the the palms and they were not they didn't want to give that money back to me and i wanted that money back but the problem was that they were not gonna let me in other words i had to give up the money in order to resolve get this resolution they would not let me fight separately for the, the civil matter over the money. Yep. Which when it, And when it comes down to it, that's how it always is. As long as they Which get the I money. tried to to kind of bring that up when I was going to allocute in front of the the judge. And the judge basically said, well, look, you, you want to go to jail for 25 years or you want to do this? I mean, it was... I, I have the transcript of that somewhere, too. That's a... I mean, that's like the judge was basically bullying me into doing it, but you're not allowed to retract those things. I'll never forget you and me are in the hallway. Just we'll, we'll end it because I don't want to, you know, uh, keep going on this. But I remember you and me were in the hallway of the courtroom, um, and the the law secretary of the judge comes out and says to you, "Me it was you, me, and Mike in the hallway," and she goes, "It's either you take the deal or you're going to jail." That's her exact quote. And I remember you you were right. Remember that? That's exactly yeah, what she said. Yeah, the law clerk. That was, the, oh, yeah. who is she to give me that advice? Exactly. No, it's either you take, it's not even advice. It's a threat. It's either you take the deal or you're going to jail. And, you know, I was, I, I always thought that, wait a minute, take the deal or going to jail. How, how are you sentencing me before I'm even convicted? Uh, you know, like if I go to trial and let's just say I lose, am I going to be, you know, uh, is my sentence already precluded? Like uh, only a beef 
felony in New York State is you have to give a mandatory one of three. Um, anything less, you know, the judge, you know, factor in witness testimony and factor in the, the, the merits of the case, the merits of my character, everything. And, you know, all this. But she was that got me so nervous when she said that. And, you know, it's like it's like the fix was in type of thing. It's like, holy shit. You know, it's not about being uh, right and wrong it's just about winning and losing with these guys and it sucked you know for that sense of that dose of reality to just hit me i'm like oh my god like nobody like forget the truth nobody wants to get to the truth they just want to get this thing off their books and move on and i, um, I offered this i offered to tell them the truth and they said no nah. um well, we we only want you to tell what we think is the truth yeah no, it's okay. It, it, it's it's crazy. You know, it was, a, it was a crazy time. But, you know, I don't even know if you know this story. This is something that, uh, that that's that's unbelievable. So he, listen to this thing. So when we were negotiating my deal with me and Mike, I wanted, we were negotiating and they wanted to give me and Mike both felonies. And I was so adamant. I said, no, I'll take the felony. Mike needs a misdemeanor. And, and they would not give Mike a misdemeanor. And it pissed me off so much. Now, listen to this. A week before we're about to, you know, make our deals. I can't even make this stuff up. Um, there's a guy in the hallway of the courtroom choking. Do you remember this? Say that again. I... There's a guy in the hallway of the courtroom choking. A guy is choking like on a candy. Mike has to perform the Heimlich maneuver on the guy for him to spit the candy out of his mouth right in the hallway of the courtroom. All the prosecutors come out. Everybody sees this. They see Chinese Mike saving the life of a guy. And and, and, and Chinese Mike is the nice, you know him, you know, there's, Chinese Mike is the nicest guy, you know what I mean? And he just saved the life. And it's just like, it's like, oh, my God, why do you really have to give this guy a felony? Um, you know he's my guy. If you're going to give me the felony, fine. Don't give Mike the felony. But even after they watch Chinese Mike save a life, it's like, yeah, who gives a shit? You know, and, and that really, you know, it never sat well with me. Nothing, you know, the whole thing didn't sit well with me, but I'll never forget that. Um, you weren't there in, that, in the hallway when Chinese Mike saved the guy's life. No, I, I, I would remember that. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a story. Well, funny uh, that, the funny part was as you were starting to tell that story, I called. <laughs> I love it. All right. So um, any, I, I'm just trying to remember because you have so many stories um, and so many things. You, you've, you know. I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you another runner story. Go ahead. Oh, and uh, you know what else? I also have to tell you about how I revolutionized point buying. But uh, one day, I got a guy comes up to me, or, you know, I knew who the guy was, and he wanted to, you know, can I run around and make bets for you? And I was like, ah, I'm not really, I don't really need anybody. He says, look, I've got my own money. I'll use my own money. And you know, if you win, I'll pay you. And, you know, if I lose, then you have to reimburse me. I said, all right, you know what? That's, I could do that. That's, that's a fair deal. You're looking to earn, you want to put up your own money. I'll give you, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. So this guy starts to work for me. It was like the first day. 
and he calls me up and he said he lost all his money. I said, what do you mean you lost your money? He said, well, I brought like 8000 with me to work to bet for you. And it was in my pocket and it's gone now. I don't know what happened to it. I said, so? And he was like, well, I brought that here for you to bet with. You got to make that. I said, are you out of your mind? <laughs> I said, no, I don't. I said, in your money, you lost it. How am I responsible for that? And the best part about that was <laughs> that's the first time a guy was short money and lost money and it didn't cost me anything. <laughs> oh, man. The, 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 the excuses and, and the reasoning by, by, you know, that a degenerate would use, it's just nothing surprises me. That one's up there, though. My God. Unbelievable. Well, here, now, here's one. This is this is an interesting one because I, I, I'm going to tell you, because I, I think when I first started with um, with you, you I this topic came up and you guys thought I was crazy, but this was actually, it wasn't as rampant um, when I was dealing with you as it was um, back in the like uh, early 2000s. Um, but there was, I used to buy, um, as a matter of fact, I think this was even in the late 90s. And I used to buy points in college football. And I had, like, I had this, one of these, big you know one of the sharp guys and you would call up and you'd get a rundown in college football and they'd have they'd give you um seven and a half when the game was like maybe eight and a half so i would buy it down to six and a half Laying what and juice. then maybe later they'd be laying what juice minus dollar 30 no oh, it's very strong and, you know, then maybe later the game would be nine and a half when the game was eight and a half, and I'd take ten and a half minus 30 back the other way. Okay. Now, people used to complain all the time that uh, you never middle college football, but I used to middle it all the time, but that's because, you know, a game would close eight and people would be like, oh, well, that didn't fall. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, well, it fell seven or fell ten. I, I hit it. Nobody would hit it. Like I, there were time games where, you know, I would buy 12 and a half games, like around 11, 11 and a half, I get 12 and a half plus 14 and a half minus 50. Then the game gets down to, you know, maybe 10 and a half, but nine and a half minus 30. I had so many numbers working. Oh, no, I know I, with the stretch factor and everything like that, these are a hundred percent solid moves um, in, in college basketball. We're talking about football. This is college football. Oh, okay. Yeah, I this don't is know. College football. Yeah. And I was, and I was killing, killing this guy. Um, you you know who? Well, uh, this guy's not alive anymore. This bookmaker. His name was Taylor. Yep. And he used to, like, he just automatically assumed because I was 
playing so much juice that I had no shot. But yeah. I was always, always on the other side of a key number on every bet. Yeah. And uh, so somebody said to me one day, it's hard enough to win laying a 11 to 10. What made you think you could win laying all that? I said, well, I got really good at winning at 11 to 10. And I thought I needed a bigger chance. <laughs> I love it. Good stuff. So, the, I, so I, I was doing that. And then something else, and this was with, with the point blind, and this was big. But see, I did it. I did it differently than, um, for example, the lion did it. And we both used to do the same thing. Back in the day, you could buy on and off three in the NFL, and only lay pay an extra fifteen cents. So, if it was three flat, you could take plus three and a half minus a quarter, or lay two and a half minus a quarter. Mm. So. On a Sunday, any game that was three and a half, they would call up like uh, Monty's office, for example, and they would take plus three and a half for fifty thousand. And then what's it going to? It's going to three. It's okay. I'm gonna lay back two and a half minus quarter for fifty thousand. And they would just do it all in one shot. Now, what I did. Now, if the game was three, they would pick one direction. Like they'd say, all right, I'll take plus three and a half minus quarter. And what are you going to do? Two and a half. All right, I'll take two and a half flat. So whether it was two and a half, three or three and a half, they could play that same middle around the, around the three. And <laughs> I used to only do it on the games that were solid three. Yeah, and I used to do it so that the juice was split evenly on both sides. I didn't try like risking more on one side versus the other. Yeah, you know, in other words, instead of plus three and a half minus quarter and two and a half flat, or two and a half minus quarter and three and a half flat, I would be like plus three and a half minus seventeen and a half minus two and a half minus seventeen and a half. Gotcha. And, but I only used to do the games that were solid three. And like, I remember there was one Sunday where like they went, we used to do these for like 200,000 each way on, on these things. And, or a hundred thousand each way, sometimes much as 200,000 each way. And, there was a Sunday where there was like, like every game was either like two and a half, three or three and a half. And I only did the two games that were three. And the lion did like all of them. Well, the only two that hit were the two that were actual three. <laughs> so I crushed it and they like, they, they still did okay, but they, they lost so much juice on the others, they, you know, they didn't make as, you know, they really didn't make that much. But that was a, a big, a big thing. Those playing with those threes. Yeah, the, you know, the value was not known back then. A lot to a lot. Now they charge you twenty cents 
Which is still worth it, but nobody. No, nah, not not too many. Some people charge twenty cents. Yeah, it depends on the total. But yeah, you're right. Most places are going to charge you twenty five cents. You know, plus three flat to plus three minus thirty five, plus three and a half minus thirty five. But um, but you you mentioned Monty. I remember Monty a long time ago. Uh, would say that you were you know you were one of the top ten sharpest betters, um, in the country. So um, and Monty's been uh, yeah, around. There was, there was. Remember the night I told you about the one where Billy Walters had the all the um got all, tried to shake everybody and every game fell. Mm-hmm. And then that night I middled the Hawaii game that night. Yeah. And I happened to call at halftime of the Hawaii game to check the line, and Monty was working the phone himself. And so I got him on the phone and I was just, I was just chatting with him and he said, how's everything going? And, and I was having a talk with him and I said, uh, you know, I'm just curious compared to all the other people that, that play, where do you, where do you rank me? You know, like how do I compare to a lot of your other big sharp players? And he, he told me he considered me in the top 10. So yeah. I always always thought that was a big. Uh, I always felt like I had arrived when, uh, you know, when he when he said that. Listen, you're very well known in the business. Anybody that's a who's who knows of you and knows the mark that you put on a business. You've worked at the top of the top of the echelon, and um, you're one of the best. And it was such a pleasure doing business with you and knowing you for all these years. And um, and um, I'm not so as happy. much of a pleasure for me after the way it turned out, right? <laughs> I love it. Just think uh, if I never knew you. <laughs> oh man, here comes the guilt trip. But um, but listen, brother, I really, really appreciate you coming on, man. Um, this has been such a great, great, you know, stroll down memory lane and how you break all these relationships down and how you have so many stories and. We could probably go another two hours. Um, this will easily be the longest podcast I've ever done. And um, and to anybody that's still listening, um, I'm sure you guys thought it was well worth it. Um, and I really thank you so much, Fats, for taking the time um, to be able to do this. It really means a lot to me, brother. It was uh, my pleasure. Always, uh, always good to hear your laugh. So it was, it was worth it. And. Uh, Let's keep on uh, trying to make money. You got it, brother. Hey, thanks so much for the time. Until next time.